Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. It's episode 225. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And joining us from the beautiful East Coast. I mean, JT's on the East Coast too, but for, for the sake of uh, a big guest hype, uh, he is, oh, I wish I knew your exact title, but I'm going to say the managing editor of the film stage. Correct. Oh, so fucking good. So good at my job. Uh, the managing editor of the film stage and probably the best interviewer in the film industry right now. Like if you're if you're looking to read feature interviews with filmmakers, actors, whatever, like if you're looking to read feature interviews about films and filmmaking, this is the guy to go to. Like how many fucking good English language interviews have you gotten uh, in the world? How many are there with Kiyoshi Kurosawa? You know, and then Nick's got one. Nick's got one like nothing. The, the guy, he's great at what he does, and we're so glad to have him. Nick, welcome to Extended Clip. Thanks, guys. Thanks. One one little mistake you made. My name is Griffin Newman. <laughs> <laughs> Nick's the middle name. <laughs> that would be a great identity reveal. Uh, a, a pulling of the mask, if you will. If this whole time Griffin Newman was something of like a soft undercover guy just like working That's as a right. film critic kind of in the mid-level and then ascends to this level of fame where he can't hide anymore and he has to do both and it, it must be exhausting you know pretending to be a mental blank check and then doing your actual <laughs> job um but anyway welcome to the podcast uh Nocturama by Bertrand Bonello from 2016 is the topic for today's episode. Um, I actually, I associate Bonello with you. Have you, you did an interview with him, did you? Well, it's funny. Yes, I have interviewed him. I interviewed him in late 2015 when his 2008 film On War, starring Matteo Marique, very randomly got a US release seven and a half years after the fact. So I have interviewed him, but I have worked with him professionally because when I was with Grasshopper Film, I handled the distribution of Nocturama. And around the end of my time there, I also helped a bit with the digital release of a documentary of his called Ingrid Caven, Music and Voice. And in between those two, I also produced and released a vinyl LP of his film music, which you can actually buy if you want to, and you should. It's a Hell yeah. great record. So I've worked with him professionally and interviewed him. Have I never actually met him personally, which is kind of funny, but, uh, you know, he's, he's answered my emails. <laughs> oh, <laughs> how I wish I could say that about myself and quite a few different people <laughs> in this industry. Um, Malcolm, had you seen any Bertrand Bonello films before uh, we did this episode? No, I, you know, I've only really heard of them. And this was kind of the the big movie that I heard of. You know, when this was released, I feel like it was kind of a, a big deal within, you know, the circles it would be a big deal in. And yeah, it always, uh, you know, caught my interest. You know, people were always saying, you know, like the soundtrack, like it's got like Chief Keef in it. 
selling points and whatnot. And it always seemed like an interesting film. And it had, I feel like it had a lot of varied responses to it. It seemed like there was a lot of people who loved it, but there was a contingency of people who really didn't like it and it kind of irked them the wrong way. Uh, so I was always, you know, when, when you see a film get that type of reception, you're intrigued. And I, I you know, I, I liked the movie and, I, and I'm, I'm glad I checked it out. And uh, I, I guess I could, there's some things, I guess, where, you know, I guess people would be upset, but it doesn't really upset me much. So, yeah, it's a cool, cool movie. Nothing upsets Malcolm. I don't really care, yeah. <laughs> JT, had you seen this one before or any other Bonello? No, this was my uh, first Bonello. Again, uh, I went in knowing pretty much the same thing as Malcolm. But I, I, like you, Eddie, I associated Bonello with Nick, and then also also Ethan uh, Vespi as well. The Venn diagram of those of the circles of those two men, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 like other than this club random, just like there's like I knew I was in store for something good. Not only did I think it was a great film, but I think it's an instructive warning to any of the Antifa thugs <laughs> that might be listening to this podcast about what happens. So that's what I wanted to actually get into is because some of the reaction, you know, you look at Letterboxd or whatever, and a lot of the reaction that's negative does seem to come more from outwardly left writers. Uh, This is a political film, no doubt about that, you know, Um, but it's it's I wouldn't say it's a it's a film that has a cut and dry thesis of if x were to happen this were to happen because of x y and z social ills you know i i feel like it's a film that's a lot that's painting kind of a you know a vague picture that's between the art house and the grind house of course which is our favorite kind of movies uh and of course you know bonello is associated with the new french extremity but this reminds me so much more of like De Palma or even Van Sant's Bellatar influenced films. Uh, and yeah, I don't I don't know. I feel like this is such a it's a political film because it's of what it's showing you. But above that, I think uh, more than anything, it's about its own point of view and the way that it's able to achieve a level of interiority and closeness with these characters that you should feel so detached from due to the cold nature of the film. The fact that the end is as emotionally resonant as it is for just, these are just terrorists, you know, uh, cut and dry. We don't negotiate with them. Uh, like, I think it just speaks to a really high level of, I don't even know if you want to call it social realism, but you know, a type of filmmaking that Bonello accomplishes here that's done through a very high sense of social awareness and character interiority and just like an incredible formal approach. Like, I don't know, cold isn't even the right word because they, they even mentioned the cold lighting. They're like, uh, when they're in the uh, store that they hole up in for the second half of the movie, they're like, how do the employees live like this? You know, there's no interior, there's no uh, natural light in here. And it's just that great simulation of the oppressive uh, environment, like the oppressive natural mise-en-scene of the current consumer world. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I could keep going on. So someone should cut me off here. I was so impressed with this movie. Well, it's funny. I definitely understand why somebody might look at the film and consider it cold. But I think that maybe it's also 
weirdly a condition of the fact that it's shot in this very sharp widescreen that kind of seems somewhat prohibitive, closed off, not just that the film is physically very hermetic, but to me, I would say that the film is very alive and attuned and nimble even. I mean, one of the things about it is that, you know, I saw it again on Sunday at New York's beloved anthology film archives. And it was my first time actually seeing the movie in full since it came out, which was in 2017, because I just spent so much time looking at clipping scenes from taking bits from the movie to like basically sell it to people. And I had forgotten so much of it and just how many kind of microscopic little interactions and sequences within sequences and surprise shots and, you know, ways that he kind of fucks up and spikes his own perfect formal rhythm throughout in a way that I think is, I mean, bold is kind of an easy word to use, but there is genuinely kind of a bravery to it because you construct this kind of like perfect object in a way. And then you kind of throw these things into it that maybe make it a little more difficult, Mm -hmm. a little tougher to parse, a little harder to just take wholesale, I think. Yeah, like the overlapping timelines, Uh, the way the film is edited, you know, it'll shift perspectives. And, you know, especially as the film goes on, I would say it really starts at the midpoint every time it shifts to a scene with a different character's perspective, you're going to be a little off in terms of time. And you can tell by sound design. You can always hear things in one scene and then you'll hear them again in the next scene. That's usually the cue or big events that happen. And it's, it's kind of like a, you could say it's a distancing effect, like a Godardian tactic. Uh, But really I think it's just uh, it starts off like that, but the way that it plays into the end is a way that's delaying the inevitable each time you think they're about to get caught and die basically it's just gonna last a little bit longer and i think it's a really he turns it from a godardian detachment uh like look at this form tactic to a de palma-esque suspense tactic uh and i think that's brilliant i mean i honestly i don't know what you would compare the film's temporal logic too, in terms of this kind of, uh, I would almost describe the editorial approach as kind of zigzag in a way where you'll, ha- yeah, you'll go back 25 seconds to a different perspective, but then you'll also have these flashbacks to how this group got together and what they were sort of talking about. And it flows so seamlessly. We're watching it again. I There are a few moments where I generally wasn't sure th- what I was seeing was the day of the attack or if it was, you know, a week or so prior. And the movie isn't woefully confusing or necessarily trying to discombobulate you. It's just that it does everything so smoothly and efficiently that it's kind of asking you to just stay on your feet a little bit. It even throws the time of day up on screen quite a bit. But even with that, you still have to put it together. You know, that's just giving you the keys to be able to put it together. I feel like the formal choices that the movie makes, I don't know, it kind of allows it to go certain places that other movies couldn't pull off in a sense. Kind of like, I guess kind of like the eclectic soundtrack, you know, you know, of the soundtrack, most of it being played over, you know, the mall speakers that they're in. But something like that, kind of like the 
going away of kind of like traditional scenes of like getting to know the interiority of the characters and what their motivations are and kind of focusing on the the external everything uh you know there's a lot of focus on the external in this movie and i feel like i don't know it's just it, it gives it such a, a freedom that is refreshing well, it's like Elephant in that the external creates interiority. You know, you're cre- yeah. you're staying in these environments with these characters so long, even if they don't say anything, that there's this like forced interiority where the mise-en-scene and soundtrack basically just is the character's point of view. Uh, and, and I think he does a really good job at establishing that early on in this, you know, almost wordless opening 20 minutes. I didn't even realize I had the wrong subtitle track on until 15 minutes in, you know? Uh, yeah. And it's, uh, it's this great great thing that as i said it's kind of between the following sequences of de palma and the bellatar influenced gus van sant following sequences of his you know slow cinema trilogy uh and i it's you know in between the art house tracking shot and the suspense tracking shot and i think that's what's so great about this movie is it's in essence it's a postmodern movie more than anything to me. It's a combination of high and low aesthetics. It's a zigzagged narrative. It is a combination of French and American aesthetics as well. Uh, and I think that's like the great selling point of this is that it just travels in every single polar opposite direction you could think of. And it, you know, contains multitudes, if you will. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I just think that like all of those combinations uh, at play here in combination with the kind of slower methodical formal style allows all of those contradictions to breathe and you know it allows the thought-provoking things to happen in front of you and you be like it allows the viewer to think about them as they happen as well mm-hmm. as just take in the you know visual audiovisual beauty of what's going on yeah i mean it Benello- it wouldn't be known because he's just not necessarily that famous. I think even in cinephile circles, like this is the first time you guys had seen one of his movies. And I think he's one of those people who you just kind of have to see the first one to sort of get hooked. I mean, that's maybe how it works with everybody technically, but you have to kind of go out and go find one of his movies in the first place. It's not necessarily put in front of you, but this is all to say that he is kind of as much of a, cinephile director as you think that term applies as like a paul thomas anderson tarantino scorsese one thing i have open here is that when nocturama opened in august of 2017 he programmed a really fantastic series for lincoln center here in new york of like influences and inspirations and just going to read off the list of movies and tell me if you can kind of spot that yeah in the film which is assault on precinct 13 of course cronenberg's the brood mm-hmm. The, the Devil Probably, Full Moon in Paris. I think <laughs> one is Full Moon in Paris by Romero. I think is kind of the curveball. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I haven't seen, seen that, that one either. Uh, Rio Bravo, and Twin Peaks Firewalk with me because oh. he's a huge, yeah, he's okay. a huge Lynch head. Okay, and I mean, I could did... definitely see the Rio Bravo Assault on Precinct Thirteen connection. You know, uh, just in the in a generic sense, but. I, 
I see so many references in his films, or in this film, rather. I see so many film references. The way that he uses mannequins for staging reminded me of Blood and Black Lace by Mario Bava. Mm. Uh, the the guy who does the, uh, the kid who does the drag performance and chills in the bathtub, the last 30 minutes, he's dressed and styled just like Alfred Molina in Boogie Nights. Like, just like <laughs> it. Uh, and it's just like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I feel like The Devil probably is absolutely a keystone reference for this yeah. movie. Uh, and I, I feel like, yeah, this is like if The Devil probably logged on to Kanye Tuda in 2015, you know? Uh, speaking of, th- I have to say, I, I don't like going back to my old, old roots, but... Uh, Kanye to the dot com. My very last days of uh, browsing that site were where I heard of Nocturama. I heard of that film on a Kanye West fan forum in 2016 uh, wow. because people were freaking out that a uh, a foreign film, uh, you know, some French artsy film had a Chief Keef needle drop in it, and mm. uh, a lot of a lot, you know, the the hip people in that film section, they they thought it was you know the second coming of god and you know maybe they were right that's the thing like they could have been right uh looking back it was it's Mm -hmm. looking back at what i was hyped on in like i guess festival 2016 uh u.s release 2017 season like this is right up there it's got to be top five you know well that might be uh, this is something i kind of want to bring up which is that the film had a really tortured history because it was shot in 2015 mm. before the Bataclan attack in Paris. And when I actually interviewed Benello, he was he was in his apartment in Paris while he was editing the film. And he talked about how the vibe in the city, this was probably like two weeks after the attack. He said that, you know, it was just the city was so shaken by it, of course. And he was thinking about the film and it, it it seemed like it had maybe shaped his perception of the film just slightly from uh, the previous weeks. And I know it's, it's kind of publicly known that the film got essentially rejected from Cannes because of the associations in 2016. And what I discovered that's strange is that, and I probably should have had this open when I was going to bring this up, but it was rejected from the main slate at can and then it had i guess been considered for the uh quinzaine de relator i'm probably mispronouncing that but apparently the uh head of it the quinzaine thought that it conflated some kind of movement in france at the time with jihadism the movie was just verboten before it could have even been seen it premiered at a smaller festival san sebastian which is actually where mort rifkin lost his wife which is kind of a tragic thing <laughs> you know, festival has a, a weird history to it you know i think there are people like politically conscious but aesthetically mediocre filmmakers like philippe who probably were unhappy with it <laughs> and look i'm sorry but as a jewish man i'm just really excited about what philippe is going to do to mend the crisis of the jews and the right. arabs so i shouldn't you know. say that i shouldn't say that i'm sorry <laughs> i'm taking a privileged place this best. but yeah it played a <laughs> It played at Toronto and then it didn't play at New York. And there were questions, why is this movie playing at not playing there? It, it was kind of a, a weird mess the film found itself in. And obviously that just made people want to see it more. You know, uh, it, it gave the movie kind of an edge that I don't think is misbefitting of it per se. But the film is it has a it has a 
an ace lance political perspective you could say in that there isn't really an exact moment where it's established the who what when where why mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. attacks and i think there's a great moment early in the movie which is a flashback where uh the member of the group who's kind of like the you know financial pretty boy is talking at length about these tests that you have to take in paris university and how he chose to write about one subject because it's still important. And the girl played by Laura Valentinelli basically says like, please stop talking about this. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the, the film is, is not uh, ignorant of or unresponsive to or disinterested in political perspective, but I think it, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sort of losing my train of thought here well, admittedly, which is sort of appropriate, but. I mean, I definitely like, again, like going into this, and knowing there was this like n like backlash to it um, from a I don't know generally like a left critique of the film and that there was this controversy I was like I mean it's definitely there and I feel like I can see why some people uh, go to like calling it like reactionary or whatever because I, I mean I feel like that combined with like the fact that the aesthetic of it is so sharp and like kind of hip and fashionable i feel like people want to like paint something like that that has like these sort of like i, I think you described it nick as like atonal kind of politics uh, and want to go at it as that but I, again i feel like eddie was talking about the complexity of the film earlier and i think there are just so many moments there in the second half where you have that forced interiority where you you don't you never have a clear picture of like the character's motives or anything like that, but you just get little snippets of like just life mm -hmm. uh, from them that burst mm -hmm. through and make them like just. I mean, obviously, no one deserves the end that befalls them, but it just like there are little bits there that make it uh, them obviously sympathetic. And just kind of muddy the waters. And I also feel like um, the one conversation where they're talking about the attack and are like, like, I don't know why it happened, but it was like, is like kind of bound to happen. I feel like that perspective. And I mean, again, maybe it's a little bit of a few years like distance from its release, but it does just seem like something that's just like, yeah, it like something like that is inevitable and I feel like very true to life that the motives of it would be very hard to discern. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about uh, movies, you know, there's been plenty of movies about like political terrorists and, you know, think of, you know, the portraits of characters kind of drawn within those movies kind of by just having, you know, these characters kind of um, just having, you know, slight moments of humanity and flashbacks or, you know, you're not knowing exactly their exact thoughts on things it kind of i don't know it gives them more of a a respect than you would usually see for uh you know a political terrorist depicted in a movie so i don't know i feel like that decision in itself just to not um i don't know do do obvious things like you know paint them as like misguided or something like that uh yeah. it doesn't go out of its way to do that so i feel like in that decision, it's pretty radical within the context, at least, of these movies. Yeah, and I think the easy counterpoint to that is a film I didn't like nearly as much, but I did like 
uh, how to blow up a pipeline from this year where it very systematically goes back and narrativizes everyone's like reason for wanting to become an eco-terrorist you know it's very clean and everything like that and I thought that was the weak part of them because that's like conceding to commercial narrative structure and I think that's what's so brave about this film narratively if it's just like split into two parts it gives you flashes uh, of motivation and character background but really it's just living with the characters in the moment and seeing how they respond to these insane uh, scenarios is really a much better way to get to know a character uh, than, you know, kind of uh, obligatory flashbacks and seeing why they joined the cause. Right. I think the the sequence, yeah, JT, you're right to bring up the key sequence, which actually is uh, anchored by, of all people, Adele Haynell, who has subsequently given up an acting career to essentially take on a more radical political life. Uh, the woman who says, you know, they saying it had to happen, probably had to happen, et cetera, et cetera, which I think colors the scene retrospectively in kind of a funny way. And, you know, in, in Benella's, I guess, most recent movie, because he has a new film that's going to premiere at Venice in a couple of weeks, but in his most recently seen film, Coma, which Ethan and I presented together in Toronto a few months ago, the movie actually opens with artifacted, manipulated footage from Nocturama. And over it plays this kind of droning music that Benello composed and uh, soundless, but appearing on the screen uh, in text is a letter that Benello wrote to his daughter, where he talks about, in a way, Coma, sorry, Nocturama being like a film that he wanted to make for her and for her generation. And he says to her, you know, he wrote this letter to her during the pandemic, like, please don't lose hope in the world. You know, this is not the rest of your life. You know, you still have so much to look forward to. And in a way that I think is very touching. And to me, that signals the kind of sympathy that he has for these young people and their anger. You know, there's a, a little exchange, which I had completely forgotten about, where two, two of the guys who are kind of like the security who help them out talk about how, you know, they can't find work anywhere and how it just feels kind of hopeless at the moment and uh, there's there's odd elements too where you know you have also an interesting divide in the film between the young terrorists who are either white or people of color and the way that two of the people of color are brother and sister and you don't quite know what their background is you don't quite know what is bringing them to it but the movie i think plays up a certain level of they're not so much the ones who are orchestrating the attacks they're kind of there to help enact them and you see them take on uh certain like sort, sort of like running point during the action but they're it not seems like it's the mustachioed white guy and the cleaner cut white guy that are yeah. like kind of run, like uh, 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 um organizing these kind of things uh, especially with you know the mustachioed white guy doing the opening act of violence in this movie, the way that that's framed after you know you get him and that that ginger security guard pulls out a gun after twenty minutes, and you realize oh that's the first time we've seen any threats of violence or anything, mm -hmm. but just the tone of that opening twenty minutes, you just know what's coming, and so yeah. that ginger security guard pulling out a gun is nothing, 
and you're only really surprised when the mustached guy uh, goes into that weird empty office space and kills the dude. Uh, yeah. And that empty office space is like, that's the only part of the movie that feels like an actual set. And it feels like this weird uh, like purgatory between the first half where you're on like these real French locations, getting to see these characters in the buildup to the attacks. And then the second half, you have this pristine department store. But then you have this like weird purgatory empty office that reminded me of like, I don't know, I, I worked on the reboot of L.A. Law and uh, it reminded me of the offices that we decorated in L.A. Law, just like completely fake in between all of the offices. It just looks like you're in a studio or something like that. And mm-hmm. it's this really weird, surreal space that the middle 20 minutes of the film occupies. And I like that as a kind of weird purgatorial space between the two halves. Yeah. Uh, but once you get into that second half, man, the department store stuff is just incredible. The use of all of the space, the use of the uh, crazy spiral staircases and uh, Benello playing all the angles possible in his widescreen lenses and, you know, fracturing the images where you have these big mirrors and stuff like that, taking up, you know, a third or a quarter of the image here and there, these strange shots. And I, I just feel like it's so visually inventive the whole time in a way that, uh, I don't know, it's just like, oh, it's very sly. It's not too showy, uh, mm-hmm. but it's always just kind of pristinely beautiful. Yeah, there's hardly a repeated setup in the second half of the movie, which I suppose is quote unquote easy enough to do if you have a big enough space. But every shot is a case where the camera needs to be exactly where it is. There's a perfect sense of camera distance between camera and subject. And when there is a repeated shot, it feels like it's building something. I think maybe most obviously this odd shot looking up at the staircase or down Mm. at the staircase but in the center of the frame there's like a weird effect where it looks like there are people walking horizontally across the frame Mm -hmm. while there are people walking around in the staircase did you guys notice that or find that extremely odd i thought it was very odd the first time and then it plays into it a lot more the second time it shows up when the police are storming the store yeah Uh, it it returns to us it returns to that angle and you have a lot more bodies in the frame and you can like kind of make out what's going on more but i love how vague it's all played once the cops finally start storming Uh, like it's all played so dark so many great compositions that are like you know um a, a cop in a SWAT uniform either off screen or you only see his head or he's obscured by like a filter or something like that weird uh mushy door that you walk through i don't know how to describe that thing but it looks awesome and uh the the cold clinical precision of the killing is just like it's really what adds the sentimental weight to the film because as i said like it's astonishing how much you feel the deaths of these characters and part of it is how Bonello presents every shot just being like a perfect chest shot that knocks them down almost no blood splatter just like a whole mm-hmm. a red hole in their chest and they're dead yeah. and it's just like so cold and clinical i love it the gunshots are mixed extremely loud mm-hmm. and you see i don't think you hear a member of the police utter a single syllable or sound no. <laughs> yeah. in the film i don't think they even say get down or there's no grunts from them you see almost none of their see almost none of their skin there's a a shot towards the end where they're wearing like some kind of face mask you can kind of see the outline of like their eyes but otherwise they are really just this like demonic 
otherworldly force that comes in and leaves no room for ambiguity how this is going to play out. I mean, one of the kind of saddest, funniest, and also almost most like touching moments of the movie is when the young kid has a butcher knife and he says, well, I have this. And the sort of clean cut kid kind of sits there for a second, he nods his head and he just kind of says, well, you can just take the gun. <laughs> <laughs> the visual work that Bonello puts in in the mall, and I have to be honest, I do like the mall stuff more than the rest of the movie. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I really do think that's where the movie shines. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not as compelled by the opening as much as you guys seem to be. I, 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 f- I find it all right, but it's just at a certain point, I, 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 I'm not as interested in it. I guess it's all part of the buildup, but I I don't know. It really f- it felt very art house to me. I never really got that like kind of like procedural like kind of thrill that some people have talked about, you know, describing the opening of the movie. But once it kind of gets to, you know, the office space that Eddie was describing and uh, the mall, it's everything really started to click for me. And I think um, what makes the police killings at the end so effective is all the visual work that Bonello puts in before, you know, shooting around, not doing a bunch of different setups, kind of, I don't know, just getting the geography of this mall and then kind of like the way it kind of cuts around as, you know, almost person by person getting picked off, I I feel like is so effective. And yeah, the cops, the cops saying not a word, you know, it is, it is pretty, I feel like I've seen movies do that before, but they have the cops going like, go, 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 get in, you know, or something. It's just like uh, this one, you know, it's not last house on the left where, you know, there's cutaways and we see the fat bumbling cop try to buy a donut for 30 minutes. The cops are coming in and unloading the clip as we like to say. So, yeah, I, I think that the, the ending and the, the brutality and kind of the exactness of it uh, really hammered this movie home. Yeah. There's no need for the cops to have a personality or a presence outside of mm-hmm. what they're there to do. You know. Also, he anchors it in, I had forgotten that he anchors it in one of the coolest songs ever, which is John Barry's theme for The Persuaders. soundtrack in this is incredible from you know chief keef to blondie uh to that cue which was also great um one last note i wanted to make on this visually yeah i think the uh the potential of like four by four or i guess two by two imagery within scope is really utilized here uh like split screen is always such a weird thing for me you know i think people like De Palma obviously do it great but a lot of people get too flashy and try weird shit and I think here in the beginning you get this two by two set of all the explosions and everything and then it's playing off the two by two monitors of security cams throughout the movie and I think that the way Bonello stages that security footage is so precise and like uh, seeing one screen go to the next, to the next, to the next, yeah. kind of like our Zoom setup we're looking at right now. And especially in the climax <laughs> of the movie where he's actually, it is four by four, he's using two monitors that each have that two by two setup. 
I think that's like genius next level staging. I always love when uh, a director really puts the time in to block out scenes according to how they're going to look on security footage. I think De Palma does it well in Redacted. Uh, and there's like a few other ones that are like really great. Soderbergh's good at it. I, I forget which movie, but I remember Soderbergh being good at that. Uh, yeah. But yeah, um, JT, any any final thoughts on this film and a rating as we wrap it up? Yeah, I'm going to go four bullets for this. I think it's just uh, fantastic. I, there's just such an interesting decision to have such a complexity with the events and like the background of all the characters. And again, I love the little bits we get interspersed there of either humanity or just like uh, just some approximation of what the cause or like what's going on mixed with this just slick style, especially, I don't know, I love dividing the first half uh, into the setup and then just the the hangout sort of waiting for the inevitable come down there is just like such a powerful one two uh for me and like again there are moments here that i think to me like just the way like mood and sort of tone happens i feel like when the whip my hair back and forth needle drop first happens that's something that's like very funny immediately and then you just see it like there's just such a weird surreal effect of seeing it just blaring with the fires on the TVs. And then he has it where like the the terrorist imagery and the fires and things like over like become like the central image there. But then after that, we go back to them like talking for a little bit about like, oh, yeah, no, who's this is Willow Smith. C'est quoi ça? La musique. Willow Smith. Sérieux, elle a 10 ans quand elle chante ça. Like, this is pretty musique. good. Like, this is pretty good. Amusé, um, and just, I, I don't know. I feel like the whole film, like, has that kind of balance where something can seem, like, cold, calculated, and removed, but then add, like, uh, a human element that's, like, really unexpected. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was really great. Malcolm, any final thoughts on this one and a rating? I don't know. I just wasn't quite on its rhythm in the first, in the opening, but I really warmed up to the movie and kind of, uh, you know, grew to like it a lot. And, you know, even discussing it with you guys, you know, and thinking about it, I, you know, I, I feel like it's added some value even after the watch. And yeah, it is like this kind of idea of doing like a radical you know, act, a, you know, a terrorist act, and then having to spend, you know, hours in a mall, you know, of this consumerist society that you're a part of, and kind of, uh, kind of the disaffection of it, I think is interesting. I think a lot of people might read into that and kind of think it's like, I, I don't think anyone truly thinks this, but I think from a bad faith angle, maybe people are like, oh, he's doing the you know, you want to be a communist, but you own the iPhone thing. I, obviously, that's not what's going on here. But I think it it is kind of playing, you know, it is funny that, you know, everyone's wearing like Nike and is impressed by the consumers, you know, stuff. And these people know when Willow Smith dropped their single, but, you know, they're also radical enough that they're going to blow up a bank. You know what I mean? And it's kind of, 
I think the the juggling of that is just kind of it's kind of strange and it, you know I think it it that's what m- makes the tone of this movie really interesting. Uh, like I said, the mall stuff you know is fantastic. Pretty much everything in there I really like. I'm gonna give it three and a half bullets. Uh, I definitely want to check out more Benella. Yeah, the kid wearing Nike uh, who walks up to the mannequin wearing the same fit as him. Oh. That's one of my favorite scenes in the whole thing. It's like a 30-second scene, and it's just a kid walking up to a mannequin who's wearing the same fit as him. Doesn't, like, mug or anything. He just kind of looks at it. You don't even see his expression, and that's all you need to know about that character almost. Radical enough to set off bombs and horny enough to fuck a mannequin. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Sounds like most people are now. Yeah, I was going to say our audience must take a lot of solace in that character. Um, Nick. Any final thoughts on this fantastic film that you helped bring to U.S. studio audiences? I mean, I guess studio audiences. You know what I mean. Uh, U.S. audiences. If you don't feel comfortable giving a rating, I get that. Uh, but uh, yeah, any any yeah. final thoughts on this? Yeah, it just it felt like the stars really aligned on us talking about this because Eddie had asked me to come on the show and I said, of course. And then in a group chat, Eddie had brought up that he had never seen it. And I said, oh, you should definitely check it out. And then it happened to be playing in New York uh this last sunday so i got to go see it again and it makes me really happy that you guys saw your first bertrand Benella movie and you responded to it because you know eddie you're talking about like the split screen in this film and he's so so good at split screen i mean house of tolerance his bordello movie from 2011 which to maybe bring it back for a second to his cinephile instincts he said was his attempt to combine two of his favorite movies which are Ho Xiao Shen's Flowers of Shanghai and Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. And wow. yeah, and which he does. That's the thing. It's, it's an sick. incredible film. Like that film and then the movie that he made before Nocturama, St. Laurent, which I think is one of the greatest biopics ever. Both of those movies have unbelievable split screen sequences. St. Laurent in particular has something where I saw it again recently at the home of, you know, film Twitter legend Tommy Prieto and amazing music cues, amazing split screen, made my jaw drop. And so it, I, I'm really glad about that because I, I hope, you know, if you guys have any inkling to see more of his movies, it's some of the most rewarding you could, some of the most rewarding time you could have with a modern filmography. And it felt great to see it again. It felt great to remember when I actually contributed things to cinema. <laughs> and Okay, so I'm going to give it four bullets. And I'm I'm kind of a tough grader. So honestly, my four is like anybody else's four and a half. Yeah. So, Ooh, okay. I like that. He he's the teacher that you want to cut. You know, well, you might want to have to make a meeting yeah. after class, get that grade bumped up. Yeah. If you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, I will say I actually I agree with Malcolm that the first half is not as compelling as the second. I've never found it as compelling, but for me, it's more like the movie just charges forward so strongly, even with its zigzag logic, that the cumulative effect of it yeah. by the end, yeah. you know. I couldn't, uh, knowing the film fairly well, I truly couldn't believe it was about to end that 130 <laughs> minutes had passed like that. Uh, it, it To me, it's, yeah, it's uh, top shelf stuff. Before I get into my very final thoughts on this, I did want to make one more reference to a influence on this film. Because, of course, if you don't mention uh, Dawn of the Dead when talking about this film's cinematic influences, you're going to get... Some very, very, very fat-thumbed DMs. Um, 
Nocturama. Uh, it's, you know, it's like a reversal of the counterterrorism procedurals that dominated the Western film sphere for two decades. It's, you know, even if he kind of coldly paints his terrorists as products of their environments and uh, political actors without explicit specific politics, the end result uh, is just like, you know, threats being neutralized for the state of a safer Paris. And it feels monumentally tragic. Uh, he employs both like a God's eye view and very subjective uh, points of view in ways that, as I said, reminds me of Brian De Palma, who, if anyone reminds me of Brian De Palma, they're automatically getting four bullets because I don't say that lightly. I don't say that lightly. Uh, he's the God. But yeah, he like forges this subjectivity or interiority through just like staying with these characters and having them act like normal fucking people for so long. Um, I I really love it as just like a postmodern film about modern culture with such a warped narrative chronology and mishmash of French and American aesthetics and truly gotta, gotta slide it into the 2010's best of list. Uh, this is a four bullet classic for me. Uh, I think I'm slide, I think, you know, I, I, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna feed in. This is like me going all in for the, the list autists that listen to this. According to my advanced metrics, I'm running all the calculations right now. This is uh, the 57th best movie of the 2010s. Nice. That's pretty good. <laughs> Which is very high praise. It's up there. It's up there with Martin Eden, Grown Ups 2. Uh, you know, everybody wants so some. many movies in the 2010s. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that is all for Nocturama. Thank you very much. We will be right back. Hit the wall. back on extended clip it is everybody's favorite segment malcolm in the middle life is unfair malcolm how's life been treating you since we last recorded it's going good you know deciding what movie to watch it's kind of like traveling into the labyrinth of your mind right and there's so many different <laughs> maps and paths when it within your mind that you could go right that it's it's no telling what why you choose something sometimes is is unknown, but I think I pieced it together, and I watched Shattered Glass, directed by Billy Ray. Now, Billy Ray, not Billy Ray Cyrus, but Billy Ray, he's a screenwriter, and he also wrote a beloved film of ours, Richard Jewell. Now, that's a movie I love. I, I wanted more. I was like, you know, I wish there was a Richard Jewell too. Now... By, by reverse, I kind of feel like this is the sequel to Richard Jewell, Shattered Glass, because 
The subject of the movie Shattered Glass is about Stephen Glass. Washington, this is a real guy, I guess. It's about a Washington journalist who basically just lied about all of his stories, like right as the internet was emerging. He was like a huge journalist at the New Republic, and he just he just lied about shit. He would just make up stories about like hackers and shit. And so uh, it's like a world of real type guy. Yeah, yeah, world of real. Uh, yeah, basically, you know, if if they were to make a movie about world of real, it'd be uh, be a lot like Shattered Glass by Billy Ray. And and wait, uh, so does that mean Ruimi or whoever <laughs> gets to f Chloe Sevigny, or is that Sarsgaard that's getting to? No, no, Sevigny is, is, uh, I think she's dating Hayden Christensen within the movie. It is, it is like a pretty loaded cast. Like Hank Azaria is like the head editor gets fired. And, you know, you got Steve Zahn and Rosario Dawson as like the journalists who bust the story that this Stephen Glass is uh, a fraud. And, you know, if Richard Jewell is about, partially about the fraudulence of journalism, right? This one is just basically it, it's it, this one exposes journalists super hard. Just about a guy who just lies, you know, for a living. Not a very good movie, but I I kind of was just wanted to watch like um like I don't know like an office legal type movie, like a movie where they're all in offices or something like that. Sure. And it it, it, was, it had a good enough cast. It was entertaining for a late night watch. So shattered glass. Billy Ray. Kind of uh, not an auteur. Kind of looks like a Monsieur Meteor on Seine. Uh, he did write the American remake. Did he also direct this? Of uh, Yeah, he also directed the American remake of Secret in Their Eyes, uh, which was a community college film school classic. I remember my teacher in community college film school showing us that to explicitly to show us the power of foreign films. Uh, the original <laughs> Secret in Their Eyes, that is. Um JT, you watched anything good recently? Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, earlier today, I uh, threw on a file that I've had on my desktop for a while. Uh, some things I'll download and just like title alone, like whatever free leech thing, you know, you see something and uh, it was called uh, The Freak Maker by Jack Cardiff. Cardiff obviously has a lot of, has high street cred working with the archers, shooting like some of the most beautiful movies ever. You're like, okay, I'm going into the freak maker and thinking like, this is, is, they're going to be showing some pretty beautiful, like freaks, but beautifully. Um, There, it goes by another title called the mutations, which is not nearly like as freak maker. That's you're, you're getting asses in seats with freak maker. And it has Donald Pleasance as like a, like, it's sort of like a weird, Timothy Leary sort of vibe about a man who's really interested in like plants and things like that and combining plants uh, with people ultimately is his particular fixation. It's like it kind of reminded me of the Saul Bass directed movie Phase 4 because there's a lot of like that movie has a lot of like like extreme close up footage of ants and this is a lot of like intense I mean I mean not intense but just like a lot of beautiful like plant footage at the very beginning of like Venus flytraps shit like that. Um 
and it like meets like Funhouse because there there are some like there there's a good amount of like carny stuff. Pleasance is getting his freaks, or he gets regular people, but he, uh, he turns them freaks. into freaks. He ma- he's making the freaks, <laughs> but um, there's a there's a middleman, and it's a freak. And I for and Lynch and Burns, these two guys, and Lynch played by Tom Baker. And like has this crazy deformed like makeup on, uh, and then he is the leader of like a circus who has, or I mean, carny carnival, and has like a a, a troop of midgets, uh, a lady with lizard skin. You got the classic bearded lady. You have a pretzel man who has like deformed legs, and those are the real, uh, like actual. Uh, freaks, the people who have like legitimate disabilities that are incorporated into the movie. Well, I wouldn't call them freaks, personally. I Well, I'm just... I, <laughs> no, I'm I would. I, I'm playing ball. I'm playing with the language that the film presents to me. Those freaks can come and get me. I'm, 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 I'm on freak level. Who's to say I'm not a freak myself? Really? The freaks aside, uh, it has like shades of like Todd Browning's freaks in that where it's just like obviously the people with real disabilities are not like the evil doers and ultimately have a role in stopping uh the freak maker but that being said there is like it's not as sympathetic as Browning's freaks which is very funny because this movie is like 40 years later and there's like an extended like carny sequence where like all the freaks are showing their like whatever their particular disability is. Um, and it's like interesting because you're like kind of it like I like the play there of like having that voyeurism and like you're watching like the freak show roll out. But it is it is pretty mean uh, to some of the disabled people at points. And like that coupled like I mean it's a beautiful looking film but uh it it drags in and is a little boring at points overall i'd say a pretty like pleasant experience like neat like i know cardiff i think has another film that's i feel like more of a b picture maybe but the the girl on the motorcycle that looks cool too like want to check that out like i don't know it's, it's it's interesting i watched a movie that I hadn't seen in a few years. I rewatched a movie called Observe and Report. So I know some of our New York listeners saw a screening of this the other night. Played in the same series as Nocturama. Oh. Which was nice. a series on shopping mall cinema, also featuring Dawn of the Dead. Wow. It should have also thrown in uh, Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie, if you ask That's me. That's right. Uh, which is something that really uh, reminds me of Observe and Report. Uh, I, it's one of the, a few things I thought about while rewatching Observe and Report. You know, I also thought about 24, uh, The Shield, The Dark Knight, uh, just like everything about Obama era, uh, like, and I guess, you know, late Bush era into Obama era, white masculinity and rage and authority and all of these shows about enforcing authority. It shows in movies about enforcement of authority and taking authority into your own hands when the bureaucrats won't let you. Uh, and I think that this is such a dark satire because it needs to be because it's such dark subject matter that it's satirizing. You can't make a nice core satire 
of the uh, type of like psychosis that makes certain men become killer cops, you know. Uh, so I, I think it works because Jody Hill, he he puts this character somewhere between like Kenny Powers and Chris Kyle, you know. He's just like or Kenny Powers and Travis Bickle, you know. Uh, he he's just like a really horrible person, but it is the darkest thing you can possibly imagine, and I get why a lot of people were turned off by it, but. I mean, they just had to look in the mirror, you know, look at the stuff that they were uh, swindling down on Fox uh, at the time. This was just a uh, a very astute reflection of American culture at the time. Nick, have you seen anything recently that you would like to talk about? Yeah, why not? I, over this weekend, I'll quickly mention this movie I watched called Young and Healthy as a Rose, which is a film from the Yugoslav black wave of the 60s and 70s, which is maybe most famous for producing a filmmaker like Dusan Makavayev and WR Mysteries of the Organism. This is a film made by a guy named Jovan Jovanovic. And the way I described it, I'm kind of repeating myself because I said this on both Twitter and Letterboxd, but I think it encapsulates the movie well, which is that this is basically daisies for guys who look up handgun prices after they've had a bad week. <laughs> so it's daisies for guys. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, it's it's a it's about this. I mean, it's also very much indebted to Breathless to the point where while the main character, who's this kind of rough and tumble sort of gang leaders being interrogated by police he talks about you know being inspired by a movie by Godard but he can't remember the name of it which is sort of a great joke uh, and the film has I'll say maybe the most zooms of any feature film I've ever seen it's only like 71 minutes but I think there's probably like nine zooms a minute and the camera's constantly roving and pushing in and out of the action as it's occurring and there's the occasional killing. The guy wears a Union Jack, uh, like sort of button down shirt and has a really cool black revolver with which he's causing chaos. It's not a movie that I actually got like that much from substance wise, except to say that I think it does tap into in an observant report way, a certain kind of violent desire and fantasy that's simmering in all four of us, I'm sure. <laughs> and I'll, I'll also make mention of a movie that I feel like is very much in the extended clip mindset headspace, which I think is coming to LA soon called Winter Kills, which is a movie from 1979 directed by a guy named William Reichert that stars, it has, this movie has one of the weirdest casts ever, bar none, because it stars Jeff Bridges, uh, has a big supporting role from John Huston, has cameos from Anthony Perkins, Eli Wallach, Sterling Hayden, Toshiro Mifune. Uh, the end of the film partly is banked on appearance by Elizabeth Taylor. And it's kind of a JFK conspiracy riff in that it's Damn. about the younger brother of a president, President Keegan. So they gave him an even more Irish name who was assassinated. Tellingly, he's assassinated on February 22nd, 1960, not November 22nd, 1963. Kind of from the beginning, it's playing with like the cultural signals that you have of it. He was supposedly shot with a rifle from a high vantage point in a city. And it is about his his brother kind of gets word of 
possibly a conspiracy that was playing into his brother's assassination that not all of it was as it seemed but the movie is played with this kind of the movie is kind of lopsided by a sense of humor that I would compare to like the Zucker, Abraham Zucker films of the seventies and eighties, where it has just like a lot of gags, a lot of really bad taste, stupid gags uh, down to like, you know, a, a character is trying to assassinate Jeff Bridges. And then in the struggle, their clothes just fall off and they run out of the room naked or, uh, you know, at one point he goes to visit Sterling Hayden because he thinks that he has information on his brother and Sterling Hayden is riding around in a giant tank and gets out and gives him the information and then says, okay, now you have to get out of here. We'll give you a 30 second head start and Jeff Bridges get back in his car and they chase after him with the tanks and are actually shooting at him as he's trying to escape. John Houston plays kind of a, I mean, he plays a Joe Kennedy stand-in, but also kind of a riff on Noah Cross from Chinatown. Mm. Uh, the movie, uh, yeah, I saw it. it sounds like pretty, an insane cast. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable, and everybody's used really well. And I saw it at Film Forum on its opening night, pretty well attended, and it, it definitely plays well with the crowd. And Tarantino is actually presenting it in cooperation with Rialto Pictures on thirty-five millimeter prints. The print I saw looked great. Oh, nice. And I couldn't totally piece what the Tarantino association with it was, except that. Something the movie does, I think, is really wise is that it has a an odd, convoluted series of conspiracy plots in the plural sense. And what it does, I think, is really brilliant is that you cast this really wide swath of actors who are all really well-liked, familiar faces. And every time a scene starts with one of these new faces, it kind of renews your interest in this conspiracy that ultimately is kind of a boondoggle, kind of a, you know... A, What's the term? Uh, wild goose chase. Mm. And it, what it does is Jeff Bridges kind of plays this like, you know, sort of in over his head, well-meaning kid who isn't know what he's in for. And every conspiracy is kind of a different performance style. Like Anthony Perkins is essentially a Bond villain where he has this giant layer and this really cool like projection of the planet Earth behind him. Uh, you have these sort of like, you know, greasy gangsters in New York. You have Sterling Hayden as this gruff military type. And something that felt very Tarantino-esque is letting this sort of panoply of performance styles exacerbate the tensions of any given scene, which is something I think Tarantino is always very good at. And in as much as he can kind of be undervalued for anything is something I think he's very undervalued at. I could see it having been a formative film for him. But even if it's not, I, I thought it was really terrific. Uh, one note on the first film you talked about having the most zooms you can remember in a movie. I got to say, on record, and I, I got to get someone with a very special brain to actually prove it. I think it's The Big Short by Adam McKay. Every okay. si- It's shot the same way that The Office is, where mm-hmm. every single shot is a zoom in. Every single shot has a reframe of some sort. And when I was watching The Big Short in theaters on, I think, New Year's Day 2016 or something like that, (laughs) I just remember thinking, I've never seen so many zoom-ins in my fucking life. I've never never seen The Big Short. Oh, good for you. I don't. I haven't seen any of the McKay movies after Anchorman Two. Actually, his comedies are very good. That is all I will say about Mr. McKay. 
Um, all I'll say by omission, I guess. Uh, all right, that is Malcolm in the Middle. Now it's time for a couple of questions. We actually had a couple, uh, usually it's like, you know, people who would never be on the podcast getting that, you know, be like, oh my God, I get to ask JT about his long legs. <laughs> Most esteemed guests are jealous that we get to talk to Nick Newman today. Oh my God. Uh, so our first one comes from uh previous guest of the pod and host of the Wiseman podcast Sean Glennis says this question is for Nick Newman what is your body count <laughs> he did i could show you <laughs> if i answer that question will you not put it on the show <laughs> <laughs> thank you sean thank you for the question sweating man we're like our dang. next uh <laughs> i know this is like it's like one of those uh podcasts that you see clips of on instagram that have like eight billion views where it's just like a guy and a girl in a studio and it's like would you fuck a guy if he said fuck you to your face and she's like mm, i don't know and it's like in like giant letters you know yeah. <laughs> we should start like inviting Young college stage girls who don't aren't interested in movies who on the don't podcast. Don't know anything about movies <laughs> and just yeah. like and humiliate them. them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't know about the Godfather, you dumb fucking bitch. Our next question comes from another previous guest of the podcast and the host of the Michael and Us podcast and Important Cinema Club, Will Sloan. Wow. Question for Nick Newman: If you could interview Woody Allen, what would you ask? Hmm. Uh, well, the question of his innocence has been settled, so I'm not going to ask that. <laughs> yeah. Open and shut case. What would I ask? That actually, that's... Honestly, I would be interested in something along the territory of how and why he chooses to work with the cinematographers he works with, especially mm. in the latter day where they kind of maybe seem to direct a lot of the film. Oh, yeah. You know, like, there's... it's. He, he certainly is not a guy who leaves much mistake as to who's shooting his movies. I would say something like that. Yeah, like the switch in the 80s feels obligatory from like Sven Nickvist to Carlo De Palma or whatever. Like right. why why that switch, you know? Uh, I, I, would, I would ask him about the deconstructing Harry-Philip Roth connection and his relationship That's with the right. great author. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the now accursed Blake Bailey biography, it does give an insight into it how, you know, he was, Roth was married to Claire Bloom, or at least was in a relationship with her when she was in Crimes and Misdemeanors. And I think there's a brief mention of him visiting the set, but no interactions. But Roth really hated Crimes and Misdemeanors. And he, he, I think in particular, he thought the Primo Levy stand-in was like, he, he seemed to like genuinely really object to it, which I, I thought it was interesting how it like touched a nerve with him. He was also friends with Mia Farrow late in his life, which, you know, is unfortunate. Everybody has their flaws, but... <laughs> He was a great artist all the same. I can try to separate it. But uh, I think I would also be interested in the question of, because people are often asking, why is this, what is this young, like, teeny bopper doing in one of his movies? Like, the rainy day New York cast. Mm -hmm. I think the obvious answer is that he has a very canny casting director who can kind of help facilitate those sorts of things. But I guess I, I would ask, you know, does he see even a second of Call Me By Your Name? before he cast Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, right. I remember him saying that he cast Justin Timberlake because he saw the social network while he was on the treadmill. 
I do remember yeah. that piece of an interview. But otherwise, I would say, yeah, that has to be a casting director getting the Chalamets yeah. and the Fannings. Yeah. I mean, it's been going on for 20 years, too. He wasn't watching American Pie when Jason Biggs was in his movie, you know? Apparently, he saw the trailer. Oh, okay. You know that? <laughs> yeah. And he thought he was Jewish. Well, that's great. I, that's a that's yeah. a dub for bros everywhere. Um, I would ask, when can I see Coup de Chance? That's my that, real question. That is my real question as well. I cannot wait. I'd ask him the Sean Glennis question. That's true. What's your body count? <laughs> <laughs> I would ask him a jazz question. I would really, you know. Yeah, what's it like performing? You know, or something. How's tour life? I actually, I feel like if I tried to talk to Woody Allen about jazz, I would hate it so much. Like, he probably hates every Miles Davis record after like 1959. Like, Kind of Blue yeah, has yeah. to be like the chronological last one for him. You know, you put on you you put on uh, on the corner, and he's having a conniption fit. Like, it's the the heavy metal rock band from. Uh, <laughs> I forgot which 90s movie it was that there was the heavy metal band, <laughs> Scumbag X. <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for this week's extended clip. Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Um, what do you want to plug for the people? Honestly, nothing. I feel, like, I, I feel like if you listen to this podcast, you've heard of the film stage, so good enough. Uh, you know, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, but otherwise, no, I, I really have nothing. Okay. Well, that's good because we do have something to plug. Okay. Um, so you know how the first time we stopped the podcast, it was because I was working like 60 hours a week and we couldn't really do a thing where I produced and edited and hosted a podcast while doing that. Well, now I don't have a job anymore, so we're back to doing the podcast twice a week. Uh, that's right, baby. Two episodes a week and half of them are on Patreon. That's right. Five bucks a month, the, the standard fucking format. You know, it's a it's an extra episode every week. I'm gonna hide the good shit on there though soon. This is the last like good guest that we're putting on the main feed for a while. Now, when we're getting good guests, you're paying for it. Like next time I interview a director, you're paying for it. Sorry, that I know you like that David Pryor interview. I just got a comment on it today saying how bad I was at interviewing, him. <laughs> but it's still getting views and comments on YouTube, which means you want it. So extendedclip.com or no that's not right uh <laughs> you can find it though that's patreon.com slash extended underscore clip what'd you say malcolm i feel like i used to yeah like go on extendedclip.com and check out all the features <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day huh maybe one maybe day. yeah yeah i'll yeah. learn to code and make us a website uh, and go to GoDaddy.com and purchase a domain. Oh, yeah. Definitely going to GoDaddy. Oh, for yeah. Sure. You know I want to see what happens at the end of the commercial. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so our next episode will be the second Patreon episode. That's right. I already threw one up there. I found a fucking session from 2019 before episode one. It was over two hours long and I cut it down to 30 minutes. And it sounds like wow. a skit. It sounds like a schizophrenic origin story to the podcast. I love it. I think it's like actually very funny. JT tells a story about uh, feeling up a girl during Cars 2. Uh, I don't like the way you tease that because it makes it seem like I was feeling up like a 13 year old girl. <laughs> I was also like. Probably like 14, 13 at the same time. I thought I, it was the age when Cars 2 came out. 
I thought I, th- I thought I thought you were filling up like a Hot Wheels or something like that. <laughs> no, it's it's a, it was a real life woman. <laughs> anyway, the the schizo origin story is on the Patreon right now. But our next episode uh, is going to be one that I re- we recorded a little while ago. It keeps getting pushed, but that's going to come out in a few days on the Patreon. That will be on Sam Peck and Paws, the Ballad of Cable Hogue. See you soon. Next main feed episode, Clint Eastwood. Escape from Alcatraz. We just keep coming with the hits. I mean, we're not going to stop anytime soon. Um, so, yeah, we'll see you later. Bye. That's what I was just going to say, too. Mom, you saw that? Yeah, I got that. Yeah, that movie was crazy. Damn. I got like 5,000 movies on my Xbox. <laughs>